Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my two co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hey, guys. Guys, we've had three weeks in a row where we had big Supreme Court stuff that yeah. we were just compelled to cover. Sure. Yeah, we're sort of emerging from the we Supreme are. Court forest there. It's, yeah, it's like coming out of our, our cocoon mm-hmm. into sure. regular legal news. This is going to be a regular episode, unlike a Supreme episode. This episode does not come with sour cream. Yes, that's the only difference. <laughs> right. The only difference. Right. It's great. I, I yeah. like that Liv Moss uh, little, sure, little sure, tag sure. you've thrown in there. Well, and the good news is, too, we don't have a guest today. Yeah. Because we're the only three employees at work today at Law 360. It's true. July. It's, it's, light staff. It's 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 that time of <laughs> Fair year. Fair point. And, you know, we decided to structure the show this way uh, also because I think we were all a little desperate to talk about things that weren't just Supreme Court. Yeah, so well, we there's a lot to a cover. Lot of to, stuff to right. spring in all fields here. Yeah. Right. Um, so who's who's starting? Bill, you want to? No real easy way to get into it. Let's just go. Yeah, it's it's a pretty dark story. Um, sort of made the rounds on social media this week. Right. Uh, MGM Resorts is uh, got a lot of really positive headlines by suing hundreds of victims of last year's horrific shooting in Las Vegas. Um, it's not it's not quite as bad as it sounds. Um, there's like some. Interesting stuff to talk about in terms of like the law that they're citing and whatnot, but it's, 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 it's not great. I, I, I have many questions. My first question is, um, what <laughs> <laughs> the hell did you just say? <laughs> they're okay. So they've, they've sued people who were at right. this and shoot. Yeah. So to be clear, they're not suing for damages. It's not like, you know, right. when we hear lawsuit, when laymen hear lawsuits, they're like, oh, you're suing for damages. Yeah, sure. So MGM runs the Mandalay Bay in Las Vegas, which if you forgot, Last year, that's where Stephen Paddock um, shot and killed 58 people, um, wounded more than 500 others um, at a country music festival. So um, it was the worst mass shooting in U.S. history. Right. Unsurprisingly, the the shooting has led to litigation. Um, there's been a bunch of suits filed and a lot more that are coming. They claim essentially that the hotel didn't do enough to stop this. Like, Yeah, because Paddock, Paddock had to bring in... Um multiple guns and all of the ammunition Completely. into the hotel. So exactly. they're essentially saying the hotel security um, and the staff should have noticed that activity. Exactly. Um, so MGM filed a lawsuit last week, uh, a declaratory judgment lawsuit, mm-hmm. seeking to head off some of these claims. And th- they they say that essentially the company can't be held liable for, for what Paddock did, that they are not on the hook here. Um, the argument, what makes this interesting... Um, Beyond sort of the the awful headline of like a place where shooting happened sues shooting victims. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, the argument revolves around this uh, post nine eleven piece of legislation called the um, Support Anti Terrorism by Fostering Effective Technologies Act of two thousand two. What's that acronym spell out to? Uh, Safety Act. Oh yeah. Okay, I can tell something was going um, on. There. These people can never pass up a good acronym, even right. with something like this. Particularly anyway. after nine eleven. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, the, the peop- we, we we needed our spirits lifted. Acronyms were the way forward. Sorry. <laughs> Continue. Uh, so the law is designed to shield. Uh, companies from liability, companies that 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 like offer security services, that make security technology, that that you know, if you are a security service and you didn't stop a terrorist attack, this is to shield you and to to you know to push things into federal court and, and to sort of streamline the way that that would work. It, mm-hmm. it was designed to incentivize companies to offer these kind of services, right? Because right, otherwise, yeah. they would feel like they were on the hook for liability if terrorism happened, right? You 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 you're putting yourself out there mm-hmm. um, if you're offering these things. So, the way this works in this situation, the security company that was working the event that night. Um, 
they were certified by the Department of Homeland Security. So they are, according to MGM, the kind of security company that is that's covered by this situation. Hiring so, them was taking sufficient correct. steps. Correct. So so the MGM is not is not the person on the hook for liability. It is if anyone, it is them, and they are immunized by this law. So, do we have a lot to go on with the way this law has been <laughs> has been uh, implemented, or not implemented by the courts, but I- interpreted by the courts? No, no? Uh, the law hasn't been interpreted by the courts. Okay, and great. even MGM's attorneys sort of acknowledge this that they didn't even like know about this until <laughs> a couple weeks ago or a couple months ago. So, in a June filing in one of these lawsuits that was filed against against MGM, uh, their attorney filed a declaration that's really sort of illustrative of the way that this all came about, this mm-hmm. this new novel argument. Um, Michael Doyen, who is an attorney at Munger Tolls, is representing MGM in these cases. And he sort of goes through about how, you know, how he didn't even realize that this was in play here, this safety act, um, until a few weeks earlier when he was alerted that the security company that was working the country music festival that night had been lobbying the Department of Homeland Security to describe the event as a terrorist attack. Oh, oh so that okay. they would then fall under this umbrella of protection. So that led right. them down this this rabbit hole toward the Safety Act. So, okay. in the same filing, Doyen admits uh, there has never there's apparently never been any litigation uh, under the Safety Act, and um, he also says that the shooting quote appears to have been the first act of mass violence at an event at which a DHS certified service or technology was employed. Okay. So. That's a long way of saying we don't know how this is going to work, and they don't know how this is going to work. But obviously, they believe that that they are immunized. It's at least, worth, mean, it's at least worth because worth they pursuing so, for them. So right. I mean, I see why um, they would be compelled to do this this legal maneuvering. But are they thinking about the PR fallout? This just is so terrible for MGM to have all these headlines that say you know they sh- sue shooting victims. We talk about this all the time. The dual role of an attorney, as you know, you must represent your client in court, but you must represent your client in the court of public opinion, too. Mm -hmm. And when you file a case like this, one would hope that they that they let their that they let MGM know that this was going to lead to some some negative headlines or at least MGM thought about it. But um, so it it didn't go over well. Um, Right. The the the, I think news broke in the local Vegas paper. Right. That's right. Early first. Yeah. And then throughout the day, you were watching on Twitter as it just picked up and picked up and picked up. <laughs> yeah. And by the end of the day, the Times had a story on it, and, and it was a big deal. So um, needless to say, it also stirred outrage with the attorneys who represented, um, who were representing the victims. There's a good quote um, from our story on the lawsuit. Quote, MGM has done something that in over 30 years of practice is the most outrageous thing I've ever seen. <laughs> They have sued the families of victims while they're still grieving over their loved ones. Yikes. So it's just... It's really tough. You know, it might work and it might be a thing that like saves them millions of dollars, but it, it they had to know that it wasn't going to look good when they did it. Um, MGM gave a statement to, to our reporter, too, who wrote the story. Um, they framed it purely as a way to get the cases into federal court because this obviously is a f- piece of federal legislation. Mm-hmm. So it would centralize these cases and, and you know, big corporate... Uh, Companies, generally speaking, like to litigate in federal court rather than in little state courts all around. Mm -hmm. So there's that, and that's what they said. And they said that, quote, years of drawn-out litigation and hearings are not in the best interests of victims, the community, and those still healing. So that's their take. Um, It'll be interesting to see with novel law and with, as we said, with the countervailing pressure of, you know, this doesn't look great for them. It'll be interesting to see what happens going forward. Yeah. 
So now uh, I guess we have no choice but to move very deftly to another cheery story from litigation over a mass shooting to litigation over um, people possibly getting cancer from consumer products. Um, We had a pretty significant development in this long-running legal battle involving Johnson & Johnson and its uh, talcum powder, which we talked about in the past. Um, A jury in St. Louis uh, hit the company with, uh, prepare yourselves, a $4.69 billion damages uh, decision um, over uh, the link between, again, the powder and instances of ovarian cancer. Wow. B? Like billion? Yeah, billion dollars. $4.69 billion. That is so big. Yeah. So uh, tell us broadly what happened. Yeah, uh, it followed the same pattern as a lot of these cases. Uh, Johnson Johnson's been hit with a lot of suits over its talcum powder. And this one was brought by 22 different women from across the country that basically said J&J's you know, powder gave them ovarian cancer, and it accused the company of trying to bury and hide scientific cases that uh, revealed this link and things like that. Um, J&J, as it often has in these cases, has pointed to the fact that the science on the link between um, its powder and instances of ovarian cancer is spotty, and they basically said this case, while very emotional um, and upsetting for anybody involved um, is fiction as it becomes. I mean, we've talked on the show before about that that evidence link and Mm -hmm. how it's sort of still a bit up in the air and and that's really not swaying juries. No, obviously. no. I mean, like I say, uh, it was it, it, it broke down like this. They they awarded uh, compensatory damages to these 22 women in the amount of $550 million, and then they convened for a few hours and came back with a $4 billion uh, punitive damages. Well, and so the, huge. the $550 million figure, I think, is bigger than any of the total figures That's that we've exactly seen right. so far, right? So this is just by an order of magnitude. Many orders of magnitude, yeah. yes. Um, we've Mostly, we've seen um, damages findings in these cases top out around the lower nine figures. Uh, the last time we talked about it, again, we framed our whole segment around what an what a huge number it was, and that was a Los Angeles jury that was yeah. four hundred and seventeen million dollars. So, as you say, Bill, even just the the compensatory damages were higher than that entire thing. So, yes, it it, it raised a lot of eyebrows. Well, and there. even those much smaller rulings have. I, I don't want to say all of them, but a lot of them have yeah, been thrown the, out, right? The, 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 the main one that we talked about, that $417 million verdict that was handed down, I think, last August, um, was eventually reined in by the judge. Um, it, the judge basically served as a backstop uh, for this case and said, okay, you, the jury, got a little out over your skis here, and I'm going to rein you in, and that was knocked down. And that teed up this thing that, that you and I were talking about, Amber, which was sort of how how lawyers are trying to thread this needle of like what the science says yep. versus the very powerful emotional story of these women who have you know have had these like very invasive procedures on their reproductive organs and like some of them have even passed away during the course of this litigation it's extremely emotional and that was at play here um the plaintiff's attorney is a guy named Mark Lanier he's a very prominent product liability plaintiff's attorney and he leaned very hard on this appeal to emotion and he even sort of um, did not shy away from the idea of trying to I- explain the story like they do on television. He well, said, yeah. Before you say what he says, I mean, this falls so in line with what we um, often read about at Law 360 that the art of jury trials is storytelling. So, right. give us the story. Yeah. I mean, well, he said, I mean, this is in his closing remarks. He told the jury as follows He said, This is CSI St. Louis in a sense. 
It's your job to determine who is responsible. And the evidence says it's Johnson and Johnson. And that responsible party needs to be brought to justice. And as I told you at the opening, it's an easy thing to do. You've seen it on TV. You've just got to follow the evidence, which is kind of, I mean, I thought that was a little odd. I mean, to just be like, do, like, do the thing you've seen on TV. Right. I mean, I guess you're playing to who your jury is, and, right? Well, and because... far be it from me to say, hey, weird It's a little on the nose, well, almost. But like... I mean, we even on this show, we've had guests on before talking about how juries think they know everything. So maybe you're kind of playing into that, just yeah. saying like, hey, you do know how this could go. We, we Think about what you've we seen We talked before. to Daniel Siegel about that, and we talked about the prior J&J case right. for that exact reason. Um, and as has been the case um, in other trials involving the company and this product. Um, the J&J attorney was a man named Peter Bix uh, of Oric Harrington Sutcliffe. And he basically said that as he was nodding to the plaintiff's counsel, he said, well, uh, they don't have the facts on their side. They don't have the law on their side. So what you do there is bang the table. That's his quote. And he said, I give Mr. Lanier credit. He's quite a showman and he's quite a storyteller, but some stories are just fiction. Well, it's, it puts the, it, you know, it's because if you hear someone saying, you know, this is very emotional, but it immediately makes you think of like, you know, someone who really did do something wrong might argue that same thing that like you're, you're the other side is relying on emotion or is, is, you know, yeah. it's it easy just, to, to, to say like it's, it, it is empirically undeniably an emotional story. Right. So you can see how someone else would say like, they're trying to use that against you. They're right. trying to warp your perception. And it's not like, I mean, as we say, the 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 science is just kind of split. It's not like it. It's not like it says definitely. It's not this. It's just like it's not as accepted as like asbestos linking to mesothelioma, for example. Right. That's, I mean, causality. That, like yeah. It's, that's it's, that's not even disputed in those in those mesothelioma right. trials anymore. That's just taken. But here, it's just it's a little more scattershot. Each side has a study that they always come forward with yep. in these trials. Um, but yeah, I mean, for whatever we're talking about, um, about the role of science in the courtroom, certainly doesn't seem to have swayed this jury very much. Um, as we've as we've said, though, in the past, judges have acted as backstop, mm -hmm. um, come through at a later date, either knocked down these damages levels or removed them entirely. Given the size of the ruling, J&J uh, &J hasn't come out with a statement yet. I I think it's pretty clear or, or pretty safe to assume that they might want to uh, pursue yeah, another yeah. level of legal battle rather than being on the hook for almost $5 billion. So, um, yeah, it's just another interesting area of the law and of and, and a specific, specifically of jury argumentation to sort of see, you know, how it balances out between science and emotion. Guys, I've got something I want to talk about, and I want to get our listeners to help us out. Okay. The American Bar Association every year puts out a list of what they call web amici. Whoa. Those are their favorite blogs, podcasts, Twitter feeds, and it helps other lawyers. Wait a second, them. right there. We, I, I think we have a podcast, don't we? we? Do. Are we doing do it we? right now? We do. And oh, one, God, of the, right. <laughs> one of the things that characterizes what they're looking for is, and I quote, a podcaster and guests that give insight into the law, legal service, or legal practice. That you know, is us. You know what's good? We routinely give insight into the law, legal service, or legal practice. It's we true. sure do. And if all of our listeners think that we give some good insight, if you think so, we're not trying to pressure you. If you think this is the case, do it or they... the podcast goes away. Okay. <laughs> or, or that. Well, what do they do in, well, a, in any case, Amber? Here's what they do go to the ABA Journal's website. We'll put a link in our show notes and give us a nomination. The nominations are due by Tuesday, August 7th. So you've got a little bit of time. Just say that you like the show. And remember, 
The podcast will disappear if you don't do it. <laughs> Bill is wrong. It won't disappear. But we would love for other people to find us. So help us out, guys. All right, guys, our first two stories were pretty heavy, and I just want to talk about fast food. I just need a burger. Yeah, right I just want to talk about McDonald's because um, because there was big news this week. A National Labor Relations Board judge rejected this proposed settlement deal that would have ended this years-long case looking to hold McDonald's responsible for the violations, the labor law violations of its franchisees. Okay, yes. Yeah. I mean, McDonald's, of, it, they, we're not breaking any news there. They have a massive sort of franchise empire. Yeah. What, are, what are the contours of the lawsuit here? What is, so yeah. this case is all about what's called the joint employer relationship. And the standards for that have shifted over the years. But basically, when it comes to these big franchised companies, yeah. there's a question of when the franchisee, that's like the little individual the actual locations, yeah. is solely responsible for how they treat workers versus if the parent company, so McDonald's here, exerts enough control to be held liable to. And the the workers' rights argument would be f- to hold the big company re- responsible lo- yes. in, in broad strokes because that way it's it's easier to sort of vindicate your, your rights. Yeah, yeah. Right. And, and that it could have more impact because it would be exactly. on a, a bigger scale there. So yeah. all the way back in 2014, under the Obama administration, the NLRB's general counsel authorized dozens of unfair labor practice complaints against McDonald's franchises based on charges um, that... They were um, blocking workers from taking steps to improve working conditions. I don't know if you guys remember, but there was this big fight for 15 thing that was going on across the country. It's still going on. Yeah. Yeah, And that was a movement for um, increasing the minimum wage of these workers. So the Obama administration said, yeah, we can go after these franchised places and hold McDonald's liable, too. Uh Um, The complaints were based in the theory that McDonald's exerted enough control. Yeah. But... As you could imagine, things changed with a new administration. So yep. the current NLRB pulled back from this theory, and they agreed to a series of deals with McDonald's and its franchisees to pay these these workers about $170,000, provide a few other remedies, but no admission that McDonald's, the big national company, was on the hook for these violations. Okay, so that's the settlement we were referring to up top. So so why did, you know, that you said that the judge rejected, so why did the judge not buy it. Yeah, so an administrative law judge here reviewed the settlement and said, basically trashed it, said a few things were real problems. One was that it lacked, quote, certain fundamental elements, said it was virtually guaranteed that it wouldn't actually end the case because it's too narrow. The judge said a legitimate settlement's got to come close to the effectiveness as if you'd found liability against sure. McDonald's. Mm-hmm. And because the deal, um, according to the judge, let McDonald's off really easy, the company had this minimal role of just fulfilling the agreement with mailing out some notices, collecting money for a settlement fund. And so this judge said it, quote, does not begin to approximate the seismic effects of what a joint employer liability finding would have had. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we mentioned earlier that this obviously took place after the change of a presidential administration, different policies on labor law. Did the judge hint or the, or touch on this idea of sort of timing when it comes to the political overtones? Well, there's quite a few things that going on here. As you can imagine, like people are following this really closely because yeah. it's not just McDonald's. It's any company that has a franchise model was yeah, really yeah. paying attention to sure. it. And that's a lot of companies. And when in you the look US. at and when you look at with, with labor law with the, the you know, that you could use franchise models to sort of evade some of these rules if you if you so chose. Yeah. So some of observers of what the judge said 
nixing the settlement, have said that in rejecting it, they hinted that McDonald's may have been trying to game the system and hold out for a Republican-controlled NLRB all along Mm -hmm. so that that NLRB would agree to this settlement. So the judge pointed out how McDonald's did a bunch of stuff to prolong the proceedings. They refused to hold pretrial conference calls with other parties they unless they the were clock. transcribed. Yeah. They oh, raised questions okay. about whether certain documents were authentic, even though they were submitted by the government. So there's not a lot of question oh. there. <laughs> yeah. um, so this is the quote from the judge. From the moment the first witness took the stand in this case on March 14, 2016, the evidentiary issues raised by McDonald's and the franchisee respondents have simply been extraordinary. So the judge was sort of hinting there that they were trying to run out the clock. So the judge is not really mincing words there uh, with how she feels about about what went down here. What did the actual parties have to say for themselves? Well, after this? you can imagine they had some strong feelings, too. Yeah. Um, one of the fight for 15 attorneys, a woman named Mary Joyce Carlson, said it confirms that the settlement was, quote, nothing more than a sham hammered out between McDonald's and the Trump administration in an effort to hand the company a get out of jail free card for illegally harassing, surveilling and firing minimum wage workers who joined together and spoke out out for a better life. Okay. Wow. So pretty strong feelings on that side. What about McDonald's? Well, they, of course, said that they were disappointed that um, this went this way and said they might appeal to a five-member board at right. the NLRB. Um, and they said that the settlement was negotiated with the NLRB general counsel. They said it was, quote, fair and reasonable and provides the opportunity for full and complete relief to all the people. So they basically said it was a good settlement and it should have carried forward. So what do, what should you know every labor law watcher be be on the lookout for as this as this goes to the next phase? I think what they should be watching for is if McDonald's does appeal to the board, which I would imagine they will, yeah. and then just to see if they can um, get that full board on their side. It is um, in Republican control right now, so that's what one would presume. Um, but there's been more bumps along the road of this story than we expected, so it'll be one to keep watching. Well, one we're not going to have to keep watching is this bizarre freedom of the press story out of Los Angeles this week, uh, where a federal judge issued a straight up, straight up told the LA Times to delete aspects of a story that had already been published. Weak. Weak, Uh, in my opinion. The order was pretty plainly unconstitutional, and there was this emergency appeal, and then the judge withdrew it, but... It's worth unpacking all the details of how and and why this all went down. Yeah, guys, I'm so glad we're talking about this because I know it's a little navel gazy for journalists to sit around and talk yeah. about this story. But oh, it's our show, so um, I just I find this one it. fascinating. So <laughs> yes, it is. It, it's an interesting question. Bill, can you just give us the the basics of what was at issue here? Sure. So on Saturday, the Times ran a story about a plea deal that was struck by this guy, this former Glendale police detective named John Balian, um, who was accused of working with the Mexican mob. The story that ran Saturday included details about what Balian did, um, some that were like really juicy, like he tipped off the mob before a police raid um, mm-hmm. uh, that had been pulled from this um, this plea agreement that he had reached. Yeah. It was filed on PACER, which is the public database for the federal court system, right. and had just lived there. So did the prosecutors file it to PACER, or what happened there? And that's the whole crux here, accidentally. Nice. So, so the the document was sealed by the court, but through some sort of clerical error, which I'm not even certain how this exactly happened, it was publicly posted on PACER, and it was there for like 31 hours or 40 hours or whatever, the Times had been closely following the case because it's this serious corruption charge against uh, criminal charges against a former cop. 
they saw it immediately when it was posted, pulled it and had it because it was publicly posted. I mean, that sounds like the way we do a lot of stories here at Law 360. Yeah. And we're in Pacer all the time. Scrape, and then, scraping the dockets out yeah, there. Yeah, we, we do that all the time. Yep. We see something important. We write about it. So it seems weird that anything further came out of that because it was already publicly posted. Posted. Right. Right. So under settled law, it should have been. I mean, that that was it. I mean, it got it was publicly posted. Um, I mean, you look back at Supreme, the Supreme Court has ruled many times that that it, like the the government, a court telling people not to publish something is the most protected thing you can do. The yeah. Pentagon right. Papers case in, yeah. against The New York Times. Uh-huh. The government has this enormous burden to prove that pretty they, open and shut. There, right, it yeah. has to be like troops moving in war. Like yeah. it has to be. Sure. It has to be like to prevent a, like nuclear war. Yeah. So. And then on top of that, to order them to remove it after it had already gone out, when you don't have the uh, the the like there there's a governmental interest in preventing a secret from getting out because it is a secret. Mm-hmm. Once that's gone, there's no longer even any government interest. Right. It's out there already. Yeah. So to get them to pull it down later, whether it was an accident or whatever, correct? Yeah, right. So it removes the the any argument that the government once had. Okay. So. Th- but that's settled case law. You're right. <laughs> yes. Enter U.S. District Judge John F. Walter, uh, who on Saturday issued an ex parte restraining order, meaning that the Times didn't even get to participate in it. They didn't get to say, wow. don't issue this, whatever. Um, requiring the Times to literally delete the portions of the story that were pulled from, huh. from the, wow. the sealed document. All right. Well, Judge I don't Walter like, was having a bad day or something. I don't, I don't know. I don't like anything about this as a journalist. So how did the Times react? So the Times complied with the order because a federal judge told them to, um, but noted in the story that it was that, that this information had been removed and uh-huh. it was going to fight the order in court, quickly filed an emergency appeal to the Ninth Circuit. Right. The Ninth Circuit set up briefing for that week um, or set up arguments for that week. Yeah. Um, Dozens of media organizations jumped to the aid of, of the L.A. Times, the New York Times, Associated Press, CNN, sure. all solidarity. This was, that this was yeah. like an egregious breach yeah, of the law. Yeah, because this is solid journalistic practices. Correct. You know. So Walter seems to the judge seems to have figured it out pretty quickly that this was not that this was just unconstitutional. <laughs> um, at a hearing on Tuesday, he said that he had issued the order out of concern for Balian's family and that he wasn't sure if the L.A. Times had like obtained it through illegal means, um, okay. which I, I'm also not sure that that would have... I don't think that correct. matters, but that's academic. Um, but so he, he, on Tuesday, he said he was, quote, always been a strong proponent of the First Amendment and believes in public access to the courtroom. <laughs> the judge withdrew the order, um, and the LA Times immediately restored the story. So I wonder who told him about the famous uh, Supreme Court cases. <laughs> or I thought you were going to say about the Constitution. Yeah, right. or, or that. that. Yes, right. yes, yeah. This First Amendment thing... <laughs> Turns out it's a big deal. Uh, so, so what? That's it now. Like, what's 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 happening? Yeah, I mean, in terms of this case, that's it. Okay. Uh, the 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 Times filed a thing with the Ninth Circuit saying that you know that the the order at issue was rescinded. Mm-hmm. Yada yada yada. But it raises really interesting questions about um, legal reporting and what we do, and um, you know the, about this this idea of what happens when public court documents, things that are said in court when they weren't supposed to be. Like, what responsibility the journalist has in terms of dealing with that kind of stuff? And, you know, we deal with situations like this all the time where a document was uploaded to Pacer accidentally or, like I just said. This happened to me like like a month on the job, actually. And we had to loop in the the, the, lawyer. It's more common than I think the the average person who's not looking at Pacer all the time realizes that things go into Pacer and 
sometimes journalists don't know that it was supposed to be sealed. It's no. just posted like any other document. Totally. And so th- there was one really egregious example from our newsroom that I wanted to bring up. Yeah. That was really interesting. Last summer, um, attorneys for the DOJ filed these redacted documents in the criminal case involving LIBOR rigging. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. The problem was that they weren't really redacted. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't like an accident. It wasn't like they, they blotted out like, like, inconsequential things it was a big deal like as to their case and it could have tainted things Mm -hmm. what one sentence was highlighted in black but it was written in a gray font that was clearly legible through the redaction um other portions were were sort of blocked out in black highlighting but were still easy to read by simply copy and pasting the contents of the brief into another document yeah right and in other documents uh, you could do like a control f and you could still find the words even though they were underneath right. uh the, <laughs> the classic classic mistake so our federal government our reporter jody godoy ran a story based on this material that doj clearly did not want anyone to know about and it was a huge scoop it was a big important story so in any of these situations, there are parallel concerns, like, mm-hmm. you know, the the base journalistic ethics of it, whether the newsworthiness of the event outweighs the damage to anyone else or the, the, the government's case or anything else. It, it raises privacy concerns for individuals. It raises, um, you know, the, eth- the, the rules of using PACER of, you know, that whether or not like, yeah, it raises all these other things. But the, the what this week shows pretty clearly is that in terms of the law, in terms of the First Amendment. That's pretty much always on the the reporter's side. Thank goodness. I'm glad we ended on an up note today after some heavy stories. We had one that went the journalist's way. Sure. Yeah. And that'll wrap up our show. Thanks for being with me, Bill. See you next week, guys. And Alex. Thanks. We have other people to thank today as well. Our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader. Contributing reporters, Daniel Siegel, Christine Powell, Braden Campbell, RJ Vote, and Kat Green. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. If you want to know more about anything we talked about today, check out our website, law360.com slash podcast. And if you like the show, leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Thanks and see you again next week.